The ladies seemed awfully excited this morning when they came to church. They were just kind of giving me like kind of sly grins, and uh, there seems to be a little extra eagerness this morning uh, for some reason. Let me tell you this, after the Civil War, I'm a history buff. Um, after the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution actually changed the role of men in America, or at least that's how it was perceived at the time in the late 1800s. Because instead of men working on farms at home in the country, in the late 19th century, these men now began moving into the cities and working at factories. As amazing as it may sound, this actually created a concern in America that masculinity was being lost. Because up to that point, factory workers were only women and children. And there was this belief that moving out of the country into the city made someone soft. So as a way to combat this, as a way to try to restore masculinity that they see as being lost in society, what actually began happening was the rise of professional sports teams. Factories in these industrial cities, they would sponsor a baseball team or a football team, and they would play the other factories in neighboring cities in order to show off their strength and to show off their power. And some of those factory teams actually still exist even today, the Chicago Bears was one of those factory teams. Maybe you've heard of the Green Bay Packers. That's where that comes from. It was this desire to restore what they saw as a loss of manliness in their world. It was during the same time in the late 1800s that even the church felt like masculinity was being lost. There was this fear that in the Victorian era, with its flowery sermons and its sentimental hymns, that Christianity had become feminized. So in the same way to combat this, there was the rise of an association called the Young Men's Christian Association. See what I'm doing there? The YMCA, this association designed by men for men to promote biblical manhood. They were trying to come up with ways to restore strength and power in biblical uh, manhood and in masculinity. They even came up with indoor games that could be played by men during the winter months. Basketball was invented by the YMCA to promote biblical manhood, to try to promote a time for men to come together and be masculine and, and playing a sport together. They came together even to college campuses, and they would find uh, college athletes that they could prop up as Christian celebrities to display biblical masculinity. Billy Sunday was a baseball player 100 years ago. He was one of the earliest examples of that. All of that is to say that some things never change. That today in 2023, over 100 years ago, when we look back at the 1800s and we think of the age of cowboys and, and rugged men, even back then there was a fear that biblical masculinity was being lost. And even today, that same fear remains. The question is, is how should men act? And we see conferences and books. People will give their opinion on what they see as the true call of biblical manhood, most of which fall into one of two gutters, because there are some Christians who try to say that men ought to basically be princesses, that they should be tepid and soft, they should be nice, their goal should be not to hurt people's feelings 
as a way to try to fit in what some see as a biblical view of masculinity. Another extreme would be Christians who claim that instead of men being little princesses, that instead they should just be monsters, that they should be stern and intense and offensive. There's young men who actually believe that the more people that they offend, that the more masculine that will make them. These extremes have caused great damage in the church. And congregations are full of men who are posing either as princesses or monsters, wondering whether or not that actually fulfills the biblical model. Either doing what they can to dominate their wives or doing everything they can to avoid making them mad. Neither one is biblical. So in this world of questions of how should a husband act, what should a man be, it is good to know that when we are overwhelmed with questions, that we have a book that is overflowing with answers. So let's look at the book of Answers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul is going to talk about biblical manhood, but he's going to talk about it in the context of being a husband. This is actually Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It follows verse 18, where God, where God through Paul gives a command to wives that they should submit to their husbands, that if we are being called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by submitting to Christ as our Lord and King in all areas of life, the most applicable way to do that is in our marriages. We saw that example last Sunday with how wives behave. Paul is now moving on to the next verse in verse 19, to describe how husbands should behave. And just note that even though Paul is referring to husbands in this verse, it is primarily through the context of being a husband that most of the teaching of the Bible of biblical manhood takes place. This room is full of future husbands and current husbands and maybe even former husbands. There is a place for all of us to learn from this passage, even as wives and women, we can learn the kind of sons we should raise and the kind of boyfriends and spouses we should seek and and the kind of manhood that we should promote and that you should honestly demand from those who pursue you. So this question of biblical masculinity is going to take place in verse 19 where Paul is going to say this now to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Your big idea is this, is that husbands are called to submit to Christ. This is almost identical to last week's big idea. The key here is that both husbands and wives are submitting to Christ. But the big idea this morning is that husbands are called to submit to Christ by loving their wives. And that key word in the big idea is the same key word in the verse, which is love. That if the Bible's call for a man of God is to be one who loves his wife, we have to determine what is actually meant by that word love. What does it truly mean to love someone? What does it mean to love our spouse? We're going to split this verse in half We're going to have two points, and each point is going to look at one half of the verse. Your first point is going to say this, that husbands submit to Christ by loving their wives sacrificially. We see this in the first half of verse 19, where Paul says, Husbands, 
Love your wives. That word for love is the word agape. You've heard that word before. When we think of agape, we think of Christ, or at least that's what we should think of. The word agape did not occur often before the New Testament was written. It didn't occur often after the New Testament was written, even though the word existed. The word existed, but it was not commonly used except in the New Testament. It's the most commonly used word for love in the letters of the New Testament. And this is because the concept of agape love, and I've said this before, the concept of agape love was a love of the battlefield. It was the love that a soldier would feel for his general. I come from the East Coast where I live within really just an hour of dozens of Civil War battlefields. And so that was such a hobby and a subculture of where I grew up in, where people loved to study American history in the Civil War, and people would have their favorite generals. And they would have their favorite majors and corporals and players in these battles that they would look up to and that they would admire. And there's amazing stories of how soldiers had such high regard, such esteem for their generals that they would do anything for them, and many of them did, even to the point of their own death, like at Gettysburg or Antietam. In the Old Testament, we see a great example of this with David and his mighty men. Samuel tells us that David and his mighty men, there was an instance where David simply said that he was thirsty and that the men loved him so much, they esteemed him so much, they valued their general, King David, so much that they went into enemy territory just in order to give him a cup of water to drink. Which, just remember, he actually poured that out as an offering to the Lord, ultimately. But that shows the kind of love and esteem that these soldiers had for their king. That's the kind of love that is being called for for husbands in the way that they feel towards their wives. And of course, it is Christ who has modeled this. We have some verses that show this. You will have heard these verses as well. Ephesians chapter 5, including verses 25, 28, 33, a very famous passage on the role of men. Again and again, there's two words that constantly come up, the word agape and the word Christ. There in Ephesians, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, just as a soldier would give himself up for his general who he values. Christ gave himself up for the church, and husbands are called to do the same for their wives. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again and again, this concept of agape love is centered on what Christ has done for us. But unfortunately, one of the ways that this concept of Agape love can be misunderstood is that it can be forgotten that agape love still at its core is a feeling. Often we actually hear sermons that will tell you the opposite. They'll say that love is more than a feeling, it's action, it's obedience, and there's this minimizing of the feeling of love. 
But that's not true. That's just simply not what the word means, and it's not how the word is described in Scripture. Love is a feeling, but it is a feeling from which actions should overflow. It is a motivation of the heart by which someone does something. The mighty men of David risked their lives to get him that drink of water, not just out of a sense of agape duty, but out of a sense of agape affection. That agape love was a feeling of affection that they had for their king that made them willing to serve him to such a high degree. It's a feeling from which actions occur. And not only that, but it's also a feeling for which actions are pursuing. That the actions of love, the actions of agape and humility and service should also be done for the sake of growing in one's affection for that person. Agape love can be a goal of that behavior. The feeling and the serving does not have to be separated. But often for men who are famous for partitioning their mind and segregating their mind and just focusing on one given thing at a time, it's, it's very tempting for men to think of agape love as just simply manly duty. But their heart may not be in it, they may not really feel like it, they may not have affection, but they are called to lay down their life anyway so that they are going to go and do it out of a sense of, of, of order and respect and, and service for the other person. That doesn't have to be the case, and really, it shouldn't be the case. But the Bible tells us that God so loved us that he sent his one and only son to die for us. He, he didn't do it begrudgingly, he didn't send his only son to die for us despite him loving, not loving us. It was because he loved us. It was an outflow of actual affection that God felt for us while we were still enemies that God chose to serve us through the sending of his son. So the first point is that husbands, they're called to submit to Christ by loving their wives, and the model for love is a love of Christ that is sacrificial but it is a sacrifice that still comes from feelings, from an esteem or a value. This is what makes agape love different from the other words for love, like phileo love would be a love of just a friendship on different levels. Eros love would be more of a sexual, attractive love, almost more like a lust. Agape love is centered totally on value. It's how you esteem the other person. You look up to the person, you think highly of them, you enjoy them, you treasure them, is how we should understand this word agape love that is being called of men. The biblical definition for manhood is husbands who choose to love their wives in this way. Well, let's now look at the second point, which is going to take us to the second half of the verse, which says this, which doesn't occur in other kinds of directions for men, by the way. It was common in ancient times, sorry to interrupt, but it was common in ancient time for Greek and Romans to write little codes of conduct on the way that they thought homes should exist. So they would say, husbands, you do this, wives, you do that. And by the way, husbands you would usually be listed first. Here in Scripture, in Colossians anyway, husbands, they are addressed after the wives. Paul, for whatever reason, wanted to address the wives first in their call. 
But typically in Roman Greek uh, codes of conduct, it would simply say, wives, submit, and it would simply say, husbands, lead. Husbands direct, husbands demand, which was fine and, and which is good and is not anti-biblical, but what is unique about what the Bible is saying here is more than just leading, but leading in a manner that is defined by love, that men are called to have affection for their wives. And we see that especially in the second point where it says, husbands submit to Christ by loving their wives softly. Softly. That's not a word that men typically are comfortable with. You might think, well, couldn't the point be husbands are called to love their wives ruggedly or toughly or heroically? I think, yes, all of that can fit into what the Bible is describing. But here is why we are using the word softly in this second point. Because look at the word that is used in verse 19. When God says, husbands, love your wives, he follows up by explaining what that should look like, where he says, do not be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with them. Unfortunately, we can all think of times as men when we have been harsh to our wives and our family. And sadly, women, we can also, you can also remember times when your husband or your father has been harsh to your family. Those are painful times. Those are times that we don't like to think about or remember, but those are times that occur in all households to different degrees. And God's call to men, his command to biblical men, is for them to love their wives in a way that is not harsh. It's easy to just think of the screaming matches and the fist-sized holes in the wall and and those little chapters of our story where rage just comes out of men and, and when there's anger. And it is good to be soft and gentle and forgiving and kind, like is described earlier in chapter 3. But something very interesting about this word is that it's passive. It's not really an active verb. The boy kicks the ball is an active verb. The ball is kicked by the boy. That's a passive verb. It's an action that is being received. It's a state that the ball is existing in, is what we think of when we think of passive words. What's being said here is husbands, do not be harsh. Don't be hard, actually, is what's really being said. It's not just saying don't just behave in a way that is harsh against your wife, but it's actually talking about the soul of a man. It's talking about the heart of a man saying, do not be hardened against your wife. And that is a temptation that is far too common among men. To wall themselves off, to grow callous in their soul, to, to simply show up, do the work, come home, do what is asked, but to not have any joy, to not have any tenderness, but to just have this hardness of heart, not even if it's not anger or hate against their wife, but to just have a stoic hardness against their wife. In fact, the way that this word is used is to describe even a poisoned heart, a heart that is poisoned against someone. In Acts chapter 8, Simon, Simon the magician, he is actually described by Peter 
by having the gall of bitterness. His, his heart is described as hard, and he's in the bond of iniquity. And Peter says that you have this gall of bitterness. That's actually the same word that's being used in verse 19 for harshness, that you are embittered, that you have become a bitter person, that you are bound by this hardness of heart in your emotions towards others. In the Old Testament, one of the most common ways that this parallel word for harshness is described is literally as poison. When the word poison would show up, like in Proverbs chapter 5 and Lamentations, we see examples of this word harshness being described as wormwood. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Lamentations, he has filled me with bitterness. That is referring to a hardness of heart. Amos, one of the minor prophets, says, Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow where they're uh, there with oxen? But you have turned justice into harshness or into poison, into hardness, the fruit of righteousness, into wormwood. That is the picture that is being described in Colossians chapter 3. Not just of men being called not to be angry against their family, but to have a heart of tenderness. To be willing to feel and express joy and emotion and comfort when spending time with your family, even though you are tired, even though you come home and there's just a long list of things to do and the temptation is just to be quiet and to be alone and to not talk and to not be involved, to instead have a heart that is soft towards your wife and towards your family. This kind of thinking is so missing in marriages because, as we mentioned in the first point, what men want to do is they don't really want to experience feelings of emotion. Men typically try to distance themselves from emotion. They want to focus just on duty. And unfortunately, churches have promoted this too much. Too many men, you've heard sermons where they say, well, even though you don't feel love for your wife, you should still serve her as if you love her. No, God wants so much more than that. He wants you to serve your wife as if you love her and actually love her. And your wife wants that from you too. Falling short of this, settling for anything less than this, has two major effects. On one hand, to think that one can simply love their wife with a kind of duty while still having that hardness of heart emotionally towards them. When men are told this to just push through their lack of love without any real affection, men tend to just become angry and frustrated because they feel that they are working so hard for someone that they don't feel any love for, and they feel that since they're willing to serve the other person despite their own lack of love, that their wife should also be willing to serve their own needs despite her lack of feelings. This false way of thinking turns what should be a Christ-centered relationship into a transactional relationship, one in which feelings of love and respect are never really being pursued and instead are actually just used as currency in a marriage that feels more like a marathon, where a sense of endurance is embraced by both sides to do what is needed for the other in their loveless marriage for the sake of the kids or their church family or each other's reputations. This is a very sad kind of marriage, but it is a type of 
Christian marriage that unfortunately in Christian culture we have actually become okay with. And on the other hand, really the greater danger of settling for this kind of bitterness or hard-heartedness emotionally as men is that it makes the assumption that agape love can exist without softness and affection, and it neuters the very kind of love that is described of God for us. Because the Bible tells us that we are called to love each other the way that God loved us. Husbands are called to love their wives the way Christ loved us. And if we simply are comfortable to love our wives without any feelings of affection, what does that say about the kind of love of Christ for ourselves? He didn't die in spite of not loving us. His death was an outflow of his feelings for us. That's what we saw in John 3.16. This sacrificial service should be done even if you don't feel in love with your wife at the moment because moods change, days come and go, there are seasons of life. You should still be willing to serve your wife even if you don't feel like the, the feelings motivate it. But your service to your wife, your sacrificial agape love for your wife should be done with the goal of you growing in affection for your wife again. And growing your wife's affection back for you. That should be the motivation of which it outflows and that should be the goal. This kind of emotional talking is something that we're very afraid of because we think that emotion is somehow feminine, that that talking about softness of heart or how men should be willing to have affection or emotion for their wives, that this is um, making Christianity too gentle for men. And that simply is not true. I've seen men have affection for other people and things. I've seen men have affection for their daughters. I've seen men have true emotional tenderness for their pets, even for their sports teams, even for their cars. There's no reason why men cannot also experience and pursue and live out and see as a goal having affection for their wife, even if it's something that they have to pray for daily that God instills in their heart. Because husbands, your wives desperately want to be loved by you. This is not to say that they are needy, but that they are longing to be cherished. Like a precious teacup, they long to be adored by you not just put up with by you. They want you to find joy in them, to want to be with them, to laugh and to be friends with them. Don't just be content, men, with serving them. Strive to love them, to desire them, because Christ desired a relationship with you. And young men who are not yet married, as you fall in love, you will be like a little puppy. You will want to please these young ladies so much it will even annoy them. But don't stop. Now you seek to please them because you see them as a goal, a victory to achieve, a prize to be won, a mountain to be climbed. But someday, either joyfully or painfully, you will realize that your wedding day was not the conclusion of that pursuit after her, but merely the beginning. That there awaits for you a lifetime, not just of learning how to serve your new wife, but also a lifetime of learning how to love your wife to bestow in her, uh, to, 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 to love her, to, to bask in her beauty even as she ages, to stand in awe of her grace as she bears children and works and cleans and cooks and teaches and sings and cries and cleans some more. You're going to have that opportunity to love them 
through all of that, young men. Look forward to that, even in these young romantic seasons of dating and engagement. And old men, learn something from the young men and keep on loving. You're in the fourth quarter now, but the game is not over. There is a love and a cherishing of your wife that by many of you is still being left on the table. But it is a love that has been earned by a lifetime of faithfulness. Because you've been through life together, you've seen the decades pass, you've seen the changes and the tragedies and the new births and the early deaths. You've made it through the fights and the lean years and the dry seasons of the heart. Older men, although your bodies may feel tired, don't let your hearts be tired. Continue to see your wife with the same joy you saw her on her wedding day. Look into her eyes and see the sparkle of beauty that no amount of years could change. Look at her hands and the experience they've gained holding babies and sewing stitches and cooking you meals and washing your plates by hand. And then hold her hand. All of this is what the kingdom of God is made of. This is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. The kingdom is from God, and the God of the Bible is a God of love. 1 John 4, 7 says, that love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Therefore, because we have been loved, we should love others and men that starts with our spouse. The arena that God has built for his people to love each other is primarily the arena of marriage. And men, we need to lead our marriages in love. We must set the tone in our household for love, we should model for our children that their dad is totally head over heels with their mother. And that may look different as seasons change, but it should never be absent. Think about everything that we've gone through in Colossians up to this point. Think of all the things that Paul has chosen to write to the Colossians about. Being filled with the knowledge of God and all the beauties of who Christ is all the intricacies of how one can know him and follow after him, letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and above all, putting on love. All of this, where does it culminate to? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. This is the place where we play out, where we practice our relationship with Jesus Christ. The love that we have for God should overflow to our love for our wives and for our family. God's intention for men is for them to be strong enough and courageous enough to love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And men, your wife is your neighbor. Till death do you part is she your neighbor. So cherish her and model sincere love for your sons someday to do and your daughters someday to demand. Make it the legacy of your family so that generation after generation, they inherit the gospel of Jesus Christ that was displayed before them in the way that men led by loving. Ultimately, these aren't my words. This focus on love this demand that godly men be husbands who love their wives, this isn't my philosophy, this isn't my preference, this isn't my approach. It's only my preference and approach because it is the Bible's 
And I submit to it, and I love it, and I see the joy of it. And as a church, we should pursue that as well. So men, let's lead, and let's lead in love. Pray with me.